All right, everyone, thank you all for coming. This is the Thursday afternoon critical care session. We're gonna be inviting one of the speakers that honestly truly needs no introduction in the field of critical care. And very rarely do I have to look back on someone's full CV and spend the amount of time I have to for Dr. Dan Herr. But uh, just some caveats, he was a trainee here at Shock Trauma back in 1985, and then has since gone off to do some amazing things. After revamping the critical care training down at Hospital Center, he decided to wander up uh, 95 and grace us with his presence in 2009. And since arrival, he has pretty much revolutionized the way we practice critical care medicine here. In fact, if you look back at some of the major articles that have been published since his arrival, many of the major critical care journals, they will be splashed with Daniel Herr's name on them. So we are extremely fortunate to welcome him here today on a topic that, to be honest with you, we've been asking him to write for quite some time because he is the person who is at the forefront of this thinking. So Dr. Dan Herr, I thank you so much for, for coming and speaking on Entitled CO2. I don't, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, I don't think that's true. Um, and and I, I must say, I, I, you know, there's people in this room that probably know more about this than I do. Um, you know, Mike asked me to do this because I'm always walking on rounds and I'm always saying, will you guys please put the untitled CO2 up? And, and the only thing I probably think I know something about is when I came here, I think uh, only one ICU was doing untitled CO2, and that was, I think, the CSICU. And, and maybe the neuro unit. And, and one thing we have accomplished in the last two years, I guess it's that recent, is that we actually have entitled CO2 available for every patient on every ventilator. So right away, that's a start. So I look at it as a pretty neat vital sign. Um, as the topic here says, the gas of proof of life. I think that probably sums it up. You have to have oxygen to make CO2, but if you're not making CO2, you're probably sucking up a lot of oxygen, it's not going anywhere. So just a reminder, there is the Krebs cycle, and there's where your CO2 comes from most of the time, and it's where it all starts. And this lecture is kind of be a dumbed down, a down here because it really is just basic principles about entitled CO2. And here's one of the ones I want you to get a hold of. If you watch entitled CO2 really closely, it will give you a warning much sooner than the SATs or your heart rate about somebody being, getting in big trouble. I had a patient the other night, I don't know if anybody's in the room who was with us, we had a patient on the CSICU that was kind of sitting there and his blood pressure was running a little bit low and he was getting a little, heart rate was a little bit low and, and I'm sitting there watching his end title and the end title is going 40, 35, 30, 20 and nothing else is changing. The ventilator's not being adjusted, nothing else going on. And I look over at the fellow and I said, start CPR. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And about four minutes later, his heart had stopped and he was in CPR. So it really is a vital sign that you need to watch, you need to keep your eyes on, and it is an early warning sign. This is a little bit dramatic, the guy just stopped breathing, but it, you get the point. I mean, the monitors changes in ventilation, it monitors changes in diffusion, it monitors changes in perfusion, and you gotta keep these things all straight in your mind, because if you're watching the waveforms and you're watching the end title, you'll probably figure all this stuff out as you go along. It even is kind of a nice little warning for, you know, for the metabolism. Um, in the old days, um, well, I'll go into that a little bit later, but, you know, you, your carbohydrate loading and stuff like that, and you got your ventilator set, and you can't figure out why that CO2 is not coming down, 
might want to walk over to the nutritionist and ask them what the hell is going on with the carbohydrate load. So just a little reminder, a little reminder of basic stuff, like I said. We have three compartments, right? We have shunt perfusion, we have normal, and we have dead space ventilation. I myself am a firm, firm believer in dead space ventilation, and we'll spend some time with that as we go along. But just to remind you what they are and how they operate, um, I think we forget sometimes how much dead space we have in our bodies. And then we have capnography, right? Okay, we got the little, little gadget we put on everybody. I gotta warn you guys, I notice that every time we have a code around here, somebody just puts one of those on and takes it off right away. And then they say, oh, I wonder if, I'm, I, wonder if I intubated the esophagus. And my, 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 my warning to you is if you're gonna use this, and your respiratory therapist isn't thinking real quick, but let's all go away in about six months. But if you're thinking, leave this thing on, because you can ventilate through it. And the thing is, you want to leave it on because if it's really in the esophagus, that yellow will start going back to purple. So it's good for about 15 minutes. So if you're really in doubt, leave that on and just bag through it. That's something I don't think we do too often. Like I said, some of this is just going to be practical, practical points. Other ways of measuring. We have three ways of measuring. Two of them are popular. Side stream is is common in non-intubated patients. We don't do side stream here, I don't think, anywhere. I'm trying to get rid of it if it is. Let me know if somebody's on a ventilator on side stream, please. Um, it's somewhat bulky, can add a lot of dead space to the, the values. It's small bore, can be blocked with secretions really easily. It underestimates CO2 often because of all the dead space. And high ventilation rate underestimates CO2 even more. So if somebody's anxious and you're doing, ex, you know, they're down in the cath lab or wherever they may be and you're monitoring CO2 and they start hyperventilating themselves, they may even underestimate the CO2 because it's not as low as you think. And it's the law. I don't know if you all realize now in, in this, the law in this hospital <laughs> is that we are supposed to do end tidal CO2 monitoring on anybody in conscious sedation. Um, I think we have enough monitors now. I know we have scattered all over the place. Um, but please, if you're doing moderate sedation or whatever they call it these days, please make sure you, you ask for a side stream. Um, I'm pretty sure we have it at everywhere it's supposed to be. Um, and then we have mainstream, and that's what we use here in this institution. It's an infrared light source. It's a sensor. It's a simple T-piece ad adapter. You just stick it in between um, the ET tube and the, the ventilator circuit. A lot of people put it on the back side of the nose. Um, it's okay. It might make your dead space a little bit larger, obviously, because you're putting some dead space in between. So you got to think that when, you're, when you put it on. Um, but the reason they do that is that these things get pretty moist pretty quick from you know, sputum and everything else. Um, but it is rapid, and it, the actual device itself doesn't add dead space like the side stream does. Neil Reynolds is here, and Neil and I, when Neil and I were here, and I was here and at shock trauma, we had the, the CCRU in those days. Wasn't it called the CCRU? Yeah. It was like 10 or 12 beds, I can't remember how many beds, but we actually had a mass spectrometer and it was hooked up to all the patients. So they did gas sampling on every patient and go around and sit on a patient for 10 minutes or 15, I don't know what it was, Neil, but it'd go around in the mornings we come in and we have to sit down and write everybody's RQ quotient and their end tidal CO2s and everything else. So, you know, that, those days are gone, <laughs> it's too expensive. Um, but I can tell you that is a really nice, nice device to have. Um, I've also said when I was at shock trauma, I learned what to do and what not to do, and that was something that really was a pain in the butt. Um, CO2 waveform. So entire CO2 reading without a waveform is like a heart rate without an ECG. 
you know, you just get a number, big deal. If you got to really look at the waveforms, and there's five things you got to look at the waveform. Simple as this. It's the height, how fast it's moving, it's rhythm, baseline, whether it comes up or down off the baseline, and shape. And if you remember those things, you should be okay. So the systemic, the systematic approach, and the systemic is supposed to be systematic, approach is, is the CO2 present, right? You got to have a waveform to see if CO2 is present. If it's not present, you got a problem, right? Like the guy in the first slide. Is it baseline at zero? I see so many times that we, people are looking up at, the, if they look at the entire CO2 or the respiratory therapist hasn't been looking at the entire CO2 and the baseline's not coming down to zero. You got to make sure the baseline's coming down to zero. If it's not, the number's probably gonna be inaccurate. Okay, so when you walk past, look at it. You look at the expiratory upstroke, whether it's steep, sloping, prolonged, expiratory plateau, whether it's flat, prolonged, notched, or sloping. You look at the inspiratory downstroke. Then when you live, inspiratory, when you're taking the breath or the ventilator's giving you a breath, it should come straight down. And of course, then you read the number. And then what's really important is at least once in a while, if you're not making ventilator changes, is get an ABG. And why do you get an ABG? You want an ABG to match the entitled CO2 with the PaCO2. We are working very hard to get EPIC and respiratory to get this together because if you get your ABG and your entitled CO2 and your cardiac output and everything else all on a nice little line, you can do an awful lot of, a lot of investigation about your patient, vent changes, and really see what's really going on with your patient because you can adjust dead space, you can adjust tidal volume, you can see how that affects perfusion. It's a really nice apparatus to have, but you gotta have them synchronized. Normal waveform, right? Everybody knows what the normal waveform looks like? Good. Typical, and they divide, if you read about this stuff, they talk about the different phases. There's a phase one, which is the anatomical dead space, stuff that's not really moving. Phase two, the mixture of anatomical and alveolar dead space, and that's probably the most important rise that you wanna look at. Um, and then phase, then phase three, of course, is the plateau. Phase zero is the inspiration. So that should be, a, that drawing I tried to do myself, um, it should be a little bit more straight down. So phase three is always positive. If it's not positive, you gotta go back and figure out what's wrong with your device. Simple as that. The slope is determined by the nature of the emptying of the alveolar units. And you all know that they empty in different time constants and they empty in different ways and the higher the different zones of west, et cetera, et cetera. If emptying is asynchronous, units with longer time constants and higher CO2 will empty later. So it should be always a positive upslope. The alpha angle just measures the amount of VQ mismatch, which is really nice. If you really look at the angle when you're looking at these things, you can pretty much tell what your, your VQ mismatch is gonna be, but you also have to look at your dead space when you look at that. And then the beta angle usually is 90 degrees. And if you're greater, if, re, if it's greater than 90 degrees, sort of like I drew here, it's sometime you have some rebreathing going on and you can go back and look at your ventilator and make sure you're not rebreathing any gases. That's pretty hard to happen obviously. So some determinants of the phase two rise and entitled CO2 values. This is where it gets into making diagnosis and adjusting your ventilator. You can look at alveolar ventilation and VCO2 ratios. You can look at the magnitude of alveolar dead space. You can look at heterogeneity of the cause by lung disease. Think about the, the rate of rise in COPD. You can see the rate of CO2 production, ventilator expiratory time, breathing patterns, level positive and peep. You can even look at that. 
Changes in cardiac output will make changes in, in the end tidal. Breathing patterns will make a change. Differences in mixed venous and arterial PaCO2 um, will make a difference between how it rises and what your PCO, end tidal CO2 value is. Um, and then, of course, there's out of phase emptying of parallel lung regions and stratified inhomogeneity. Means that this, even though you have this entire CO2, there are a lot of things that can affect it. And you really have to look at what you're doing when you look at the entire CO2. It's not just a, a number you look at. But certainly, when you go past somebody who's on entire CO2 monitoring and the waveform looks funny, i.e., it doesn't look like the normal one I showed you, that's the time to walk in the room and start doing some investigation. Because nine chances out of ten, you're going to find one of these things is going wrong. So interesting uses. Um, obviously, everybody knows about using entire CO2 for intubation. You can use it for adjusting your ventilator. Simple stuff, hypo, hyperventilation. That's pretty simple. You can use a diagnosis of COPD. You can use it for a diagnosis of bronchospasm. You can use it for the diagnosis of PE. And we'll show you some stuff. Even use it for fluid responsiveness, and I'll show you some trials on that. We use it a lot for weaning trials upstairs, and I'll explain that. Um, Follow-up treatment, obviously lytic therapy, you can watch your dead space changes as you dissolve a PE. You can look at your bronchodilator effect, whether or not you're having a bronchodilator effect. You can use it for CPR, which we're going to talk about. And then, of course, weaning, even in my world, weaning a VA ECMO. It's been a really nice device. I can tell you pretty quickly whether a person's going to come off VA ECMO by just looking at the entitled CO2. Think about how that happens, of course. And you probably can use it for even titrating or driving pressures. Think about how you can do that. So waveform, regular shape, plateau, below normal, always indicates what? CO2 deficiency. So you're hyperventilating, you have decreased perfusion, hypothermia, or just decreased metabolism, which hyperthermia So anytime you see the waveform, it's a normal shape, but the plateau is below normal, that's probably one of the things that's going on. Simple as that. And if the plateau is above normal, obviously the CO2 is high. So increased temp, the extra carbs, that's kind of push on my part, I think. And probably you're just developing hypoventilation, right? That's the most common thing. So now you see the number up there of 45 or 50, but you also look at the waveform. And if you look at the waveform, and it's just a simple plateau above normal and everything else that looks the normal shape, well, what do you do? You adjust your ventilator. You go in and adjust your ventilator. If it's different abnormal, if it's a different shape, then you've got to go figure out what the heck's going on with the patient besides the ventilator because that's something intrinsic to the patient's lungs, because it's the emptying of the alveoli. A sudden increase, sodium bicarb, I've seen that. It's kind of cool to watch, actually. You're resuscitating somebody, somebody gives a bunch of bicarb, the CPR is doing the same, all of a sudden it pops up, and everybody's happy, and all of a sudden it pops right back down again. Remember, you gave the bicarb. Um, we've seen it in the surgical units when they release a tourniquet or something like that. Boom, all the CO2 goes rushing out, and that, you'll see a nice little spike. But you've got to be watching. You gotta be watching. So typical waveforms, these are so easy. And then you see the bottom one is kind of demonstrating bronchospasm where it takes a little bit longer to get the air out, the entitled CO2 out. So obviously it gets a different curve. But if you see these normal ones, the first two, hyperventilation, hypoventilation, it's usually something to do with the ventilator. And it's really easy to fix. So when you're walking past a patient, you don't have to go get an ABG. Just look at the blood gas for gosh sake, or look at the waveform. Um, the other thing, I showed this slide, I know I keep talking about hyperventilation, but I show this slide because if you see the trend thing, 
It's really cool. We can actually do this in our monitors. Nobody, I've never seen anybody do this. Never on rounds. And I've done it a couple of times myself. But you can actually adjust our monitors to a different time, and you can actually see the trend much easier than you can by just looking at the waveform individually. There are all those waveforms just condensed. So you can really see trends during the morning. So if you're playing with a ventilator or if you're doing entire, if you're doing weaning or something like that, just go over and hit the monitor and you change. Of course, how many people know how to work their monitors anymore? But ask the nurse, I guess, to go change the monitor and, and speed it up and you'll get this nice little trend. And you can look at it over a weaning period. You can just leave the entitled sitting on a person and look at it later. Um, or if you're doing manipulations, you can make it do that and you can see which effect of your manipulations. Which I don't think a lot of people realize. Assessing intubation and, uh, intubation and ventilation, it's really 100% specific. If, you know, you put it on, if you don't have an end title coming out of your ET tube, there's a problem, right? Um, something's wrong. Um, on esophageal intubation, sometimes I think you all realize, and I talked about that with the colorimetric, is when you intubate them, okay, you got an esophagus, right? And you oftentimes have a lot of pharyngeal air pushed into the stomach as you're bagging the patient. So you'll have a pop of your entitled CO2, but keep an eye on it because if it drifts over time down over the next six or seven beats or 10 breaths, you better be worried that you're in the esophagus. And that's what I'm saying. Make sure when you at least put the color metric on and now you have these, you should be able to see if you're in the esophagus. There should be no doubt. If your entitled disappears after about 10 breaths, you're probably not where you want to be. Um, and always watch out for plugs, plugs, bronchospasms, squeezing the bag yourself is usually better than end tidal CO2, but like when I'm managing a code, I'm always looking, if I have the end tidal CO2 hooked up, I'm always looking up at that every so often. I just take a gantz at it, look at it every so often. And if, it's not, if there's a problem with that, the first thing I do is walk to the head of the bed and feel that bag. Because if that bag's hard to squeeze, sometimes the respiratory therapy you wash them, you're just sitting there going like this, and you think, oh crap, there's something really wrong here. Gotta get a plug out, gotta get the kink out got to get it out of the esophagus, something. So it can be used for that. Um, I don't know, bronchospasm, I think we already did that. But here's just an inter interesting thing. When you can really do this, and this is obviously taken from the web somewhere, but you can actually do, give somebody a bronchodilator therapy and look at their entitled CO2s. And if it's effective, their entitled CO2 should change. It should get better. It should square off a little bit more. You shouldn't have that shark tooth sloping up. Um, and I think rarely have I ever seen it, so I will get rid of the albuterol really quick if I don't see any changes in my entire after maybe two or three treatments. And again, if you really want to go back and look, just ask the respiratory therapist, hey, when did you do it? Go back and set your monitor, run your monitor backwards, and you'll be able to see it. All the monitors now, the central stations, have the ability to go out 48 hours. And CO2 is actually on all the central stations. You just don't realize it. Um, we should probably have a course on how to use the central stations. Um, but anyway, yes, you can go back and look. Um, COPD is kind of interesting. It, it doesn't, if you look at the, uh, the bronchospasm, it's kind of more shark toothy. Where the COPD is, this is what we normally see at phase three, is just that continuous rise. Um, it's pretty common in a lot of our patients, and you'll really notice that you can really, once you get used to looking at these, you can really tell the difference between that slope. Um, when you've got a person with lung disease and you go over and look at the x-ray and you say, oh, <clears throat> that explains that. So entitled CO2 and cardiac output. Um, there's definitely a correlation, um, but you have to have all things equal, right? Um, if you're messing around with the ventilator and you're trying to figure out if their cardiac output's any good, then it's probably not going to be of much help. 
But cardiac output is largely affected only in dynamic situations, not when the circulation is stable. All right, so if the patient starts getting sick and your entitled CO2 starts going down and you're seeing arrhythmias, you might say to yourself, whoa, this, there's something wrong, wrong here, as long as the patient's not hyperventilating themselves, which they rarely are. I mean, we'll, you can see this up in our unit all the time. We have swans, you're watching the cardiac output, and it's slowly dwindling down immediately post-op, and you look up at the entitled CO2 and you say to yourself, what, that was 45 just a little while ago, what's going on? And you know that your index is down to 1.6. That's usually a pretty good idea that something's going wrong. Entitled CO2 of greater less, of less than 10 after 20 minutes of CPR is associated with a very high mortality rate. So we all know about entitled CO2, but we don't rarely do it in this institution, but coming to a theater near you soon. Must make sure adequate compression before making a judgment about entitled CO2. It's really important in CPR cases. So cardiac arrest. Entitled carbon dioxide monitoring may be associated with higher possibility of return to spontaneous circulation during out of the hospital. Conclusion, patients who receive entitled CO2 in a hospital cardiac arrest had a higher possibility of sustained re uh, return of circulation, but the overall UCT is still low despite strong recommendations for its use. How many people have been to a code here and had entitled CO2 monitoring? Really? I don't think I've ever seen it. For the whole time? In the unit. In the unit. <laughs> I was going to say, because our anesthesiologists here come, we bought them these really expensive handheld entitled CO2 quantitative measurement devices, and they come to the codes and they take them back with them when they finish intubating. So we are going to get you new defibrillators. So coming in about three months, starting in July, as a matter of fact, um, we're going to start spreading these around the house. And all your Zold defibrillators now will have entitled CO2 capability. All your Zold defibrillators will have entitled CO2 capability. Will you please use it? So if you're at a code, make sure that the entitled CO2 is hooked up. And I think you will see some very impressive results once you get used to looking at it. Um, you as the person running the code, I don't think there's an excuse not to look at it. Remember, if it's less than 10, you've probably got a problem if your compressions are good. These old defibrillators, by the way, also measure your depth of, of compression. So it'll actually tell you when you're not pressing hard enough. Um, so they're coming. Um, all the units will get them probably by the end of summer, I would hope. If you want to learn more about them, get in touch with me and we'll teach you. So mechanical ventilation, is there a better way? Do you all know what this is? Do you all realize what that is? I guess you've seen the slide. It's the iron lung. Uh, Neil knows what it is. Um, it's, 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 so it's very interesting because a lot of these people still died. I'm sorry I picked on you, Neil. A lot of these people still died, but they were, they were oxygenated quite well. But a lot of people died because they weren't ventilated well on these things because, it's, you know, it's negative pressure. It's kind of trying to suck your chest out and then push it back in. Um, so really, positive ventilation developed after this, after this period. And really, the ICUs, of course, came after that because now we had all these ventilators and we didn't know what to do with them and everything. So it really brought in the idea of dead space. And I just want to talk a little bit about dead space. And I'm sure there's much better physiologists in this room than me. But obviously, it's about ordered CO2 clearance. And I, I think there was, a, there was a quote I saw, which I absolutely love. It says, measurement of physiologic dead space should be the most valuable and intuitive tool to manage ventilation. And when you really think about it, there's a lot more dead space stuff going on than shunt, I believe. 
Um, and if you watch end tidal CO2s and actually measure your dead space, you will be really amazed how much dead space you have with your patients. Um, much more emphasis on oxygenation in the days of permissive hypercapnia. You know, everybody's kind of worried about, you know, the, the O2. Oh, we let the CO2 go high, but we got to have that, that ventilation, I mean, that oxygenation. But hypercapnia with adequate ventilation implies dead space, in my mind. Maybe I'm not right. Normal dead space is about two mils per kg, okay? If you have more than that, you're probably headed down the wrong path. Something's wrong. And of course, you all know, just a refresher, this is more for medical students, but you know, we do have our different areas of dead space. We have the anatomic, we have the alveolar, and of course, we have the mechanical. And we gotta always remember that. Um, do you all remember what's a total, what's a normal tidal volume? Anybody know? It's around 500, right? Somewhere around there. And our normal anatomical dead space is about 150. And our normal gas exchange would be 350 maybe, because the totals are 500. So, okay, these are great numbers. Well, Dr. Her, who cares? Well, I think it's really important because you can actually calculate dead space with entitled CO2. You just use the border equation, and I'm not gonna derive it. I looked at the equations and I said, I'm not gonna do that. Um, but the bottom line is it's a PaCO2 minus a PeCO2 over the PaCO2. And if you're really smart, when you're on rounds, you can figure this out. It's, much, it's very easy to do. And it's what's really interesting is about shunt and dead space. If you look at shunt part of cardiac, as part of as a, like cardiac output as a symbol of shunt, if you look at the effect on dead space, shunt has a very little effect on dead space as opposed to um, ventilation, perfusion, and equality. So it's, it's terribly important to, to calculate your dead space in my mind. How do you do that? Well, guess what? You have volume capnography. And what's really surprised me the other day, I thought, you know, I wonder if our draggers actually do this. Because we used to be able to get it when we had the mass spec when I was a fellow here. But you can. Guess what? The new draggers actually does volume capnography. Um, and it's really, really important, I think, to learn how to use that. I haven't turned the respiratory therapist to say turn it on yet, but it's there. If you want to ask, you can get it. Um, if this is X is the elimination volume, Y is the alveolar dead space volume, and Z is the airway dead space volume. And then the tidal volume expired is the whole darn thing. And you can actually calculate um, your, your volume of dead space. And there's the ventilator that actually does it for you. So I think this is something that we're gonna start incorporating and if some fellow wants to really jump on this and try to help us develop some guidelines for our new draggers, I would appreciate their help. Um, I'm not gonna do it, that's for sure. Um, so the bottom line is you can actually calculate dead space and you can actually use it to your advantage. So here's an interesting thing, entitled and arterial oxygen dioxide, carbon dioxide measurements correlate across all levels of physiology. Found a moderate to strong positive linear relationship of coefficients and tidal CO2 and PaOC2 for all four VDVT ranges, although the strength of the correlation decreased slightly as the VDVT decreased, increased. So, so the bottom line is that, that if you track dead space, in my mind, it is pretty accurate to give you an idea of what is actually going on with perfusion or with um, ventilation. And we use it sometimes upstairs. We just look at the end tidal PaCO2 gradient. Sometimes we'll do it to just PEEP. Because if it's, if it's too much, it'll increase the gradient. Simple as that, think about it. And it will drop initially, but when you increase the PEEP, you gotta watch because as soon as you increase it, the, the end tidal CO2 will drop on you. 
and then it'll drift back up. And you're just probably thinking, Doctor, I don't know if I've ever seen that. Well, you never look for it, probably. But it happens. And I'm talking about pushing PEEP up. We go up by fives and down by twos, usually in the CSICU. And it's useful for weaning event once a gradient is established, because now you can start playing with the PEEP. And you can see where you are. When you need to measure the parameter of ventilation, when do you need to measure the parameter of ventilation? Well, I call the parameter of ventilation the measure of the dead space. So when do you need to do it? Probably every time you do an ABG. So every time we do an ABG, we're trying to get the respiratory therapist to record the entitled CO2. So ARDS, is ARDS a dead space disease? I think it is. Um, I could probably argue this. You guys can probably argue with me for hours. Tidal volume is distributed poorly to non-perfused parts. Hopefully not over distension. We don't do villi. We have villi now. In the old days, obviously, it was a lot of dead space because we were jacking people's peeps up to 40 or their tidal volumes up to 500 or whatever, or 600 or whatever it was. And we have a lot of, and, and in ARDS, you actually have a lot of microemboli. You guys all know from the previous trials. I mean, look at Zygris. The physiology is still there. The drug didn't work, but the physiology is still there. You're plugging off. You're having a low flow states. <coughs> And that's dead space, by the way. Um, Non-endothelial, you have a lot of endothelial damage. So is it shunt or is it dead space? In my mind, endothelial damage is dead space because the blood doesn't exchange. There's no way the blood gets through. It doesn't, it doesn't go, the endothelium's gone. And if you look at people with bad ARDS, what is it? It's, it's a dead space problem. If you look at the ability, how much dead space they have, it's huge. Um, Dr. Reed is always walking into my unit looking for this kind of stuff. Non-survivors have a significant higher dead space. Usual, use serial measurements of dead space for progression of disease. This is, a well, this is an article, I didn't quote it, but there's an article that I read um, that actually showed that the progression of ARDS is highly associated with the dead space. How else can we use dead space? Well, obviously, diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. It's a classic, right? There's no flow and a lot of air. Um, it's usually used in a clinical, usually your diagnosis results in what you do. You look at a patient, you say, oh, they're hypoxic, or they have a clinic, the clinical scenario says they have a PE. You use Wellens criteria. You look at D-dimers. Well, D-dimers in our patients, we all know what the problem is with that. That's an ER diagnosis, I think. But if you, um, if you send a person off based on just clinicals, th less than 35% are confirmed by CT, even based on all the clinical stuff. But if you see a 13 to 20, a 13 to 20 percent drop in dead space, you better go to CT. So, and when we round in our unit, and somebody says, "Hey, Dr. Hurley, I think they have a PE. They're hypoxic and they're breathing fast," we'll go in and take a look at her and take a look at the prior um, the dead spaces. You can go back on the ventilator and look at them. You can go back on the ET on the central monitor and look at them. If that dead space isn't big, I'm not sending them. Um, and it's it, because there's no really that's the that's the physiology. So here you go. Pulmonary embolism, Bradford rule, ventile CO2 is a screening tool. So it has a negative predictive value, a negative predictive value. So in other words, if you don't have dead space, the chances of having a PE is pretty low, especially if you're hypoxic. Just think how much clot you have to bear to be hypoxic with a PE. You better have a dead space shunt. Diagnostic role of capnography and pulmonarism, the use of dead space in combination with any other of the other scoring systems that evaluate clinical likelihood of PE and D result in a higher sensitivity and specificity rates for the diagnosis of PE. Capnography as a diagnostic tool for pulmonarism meta-analysis. In summary, this meta-analysis of 14 studies found that capnography might permit the exclusion of pulmonary armillism in cases when the pretest probability is less than 10%. Well, that, 
that's a pretty soft. So I go with the other ones, to be honest with you. But at least you have a good chance. If you don't have dead space, and you don't have an increase in dead space, chances are having a pulmonary embolism. Um, a significant pulmonary embolism is pretty low. Here's another use of the dead space in the entitled CO2. Non-invasive assessment of fluid response by changes in partial entitled CO2 pressure during a passive leg raising maneuver. The only reason I put this up is, is that everybody talks about these darn passive leg maneuvers. And I gotta tell you, I found them so wrong, so, done so wrong so many times. And if you talk to uh, Vincent, he's just so anti-leg lifting, it's unbelievable, yet he was the first one to write about with Max Harry Wheel. But the bottom line is that you have to take a patient and you have to be deeply sedated. There gotta be no respiratory experts. And you have to be on some type of volume control or pressure control ventilation, right? You have to be in sinus rhythm, right? Nobody ever does that, well, rarely. And then, you got to put them on baseline. You got to. This is the sequence. You do it, and look at this. Baselines, their head up. When you really do passive leg raising, you're supposed to put their head down and their legs up. I've seen it different, done different ways in this place. I've seen people sitting up and then just somebody raises a leg. You say, "Oh, look." And I'm not buying it. And then you have to do a, a pre-infusion and a post-infusion to see if, you know, obviously if it changes. And what they did was they induced changes in PTCO2 during the PLR maneuver could be used to track changes in cardiac output for prediction of fluid responsiveness in mechanically ventilated patients. So you, maybe you can use it. At least it might be better than just raising their legs and watching and see what happens. Um, the other thing, though, I must say, I, I, the caveat is, that, boy, if you have an A-line that's going like this, you probably have a pretty good chance at <laughs> the ventilators. But watch the end titles. Um, we use end title CO2 for weaning upstairs. Um, we use it fairly often. You have to know your gradient, so we get a gradient every morning, at least we try to. Um, a volumetric, now I know the, the ventilators do volumetric, I'll probably use that, but I haven't used it yet. Um, and we look at the end-tidal CO2 plus the frequency tidal volume ratio, and, and we, upstairs, sometimes, and you've all seen me do this, and a couple other people picked up on it, but if you take the, the, the monitor, the end-tidal CO2 monitor, and you just take it off, the patient off the ventilator, and you put the end-tidal on, and you just watch your waveforms, and if you're generating a lot of dead space, you're probably not ready to be extubated. <laughs> and we use this a lot just to, for a quick look to see if the patient's gonna tolerate extubation. And if you put this, and when we do that, we also make the patient cough. And if the patient can cough and get sputum out of their lungs by at least two centimeters, we usually use that as an indicator that we can probably get the patient extubated. So we'll extubate a lot of people with high frequency tidal volume ratios um, if they look good on their, their entire. And if you look at this guy's entire CO2, um, he's fine. He's pretty sleepy. He's just post-op heart. He's, but he breathes normally. Look at his nice waveforms. So we extubated him almost within the next 20 minutes or so. The other thing I wanted to talk about, we talked about this, we, uh, the group of attendings got together the other day and we kind of talk about things that we do differently. And one of the things we were talking about is how do we wean patients, chronic artificial airway patients? In other words, do we do T-piece trials? Do we, we do pressure support trials? But, but how do we know how well they're advancing? And, and I put forth that sometimes I think we should use our, um, our end-tidal CO2s to help us. So what we try to do in the CSICU is we start a weaning trial and say we'll put a person, and he's passing his SBT, but we're, you know, he's been intubated for, what, three weeks? 
So we're not quite sure if it's endurance. So we'll put, we'll spot check the rentile CO2s every hour, and we'll do a RISB, we'll do an entile CO2 at the end of the trial before we put them back on the ventilator, and we'll do an entile, and I'll do a RISB. And we did a RISB and an entile CO2 when we started the trial. And if the entile CO2's normal at the end of the trial, but the RISB's up, we say we shouldn't advance them. Or if the entile CO2's up, and the RISB's up, we don't advance them. So we kind of use that, and I don't have any proof, you guys, but it's, it's some objective criteria that you can actually use for, for chronic vent weans. Um, and whether or not somebody wants to pick that up as a project, I'd really appreciate it. But it is a way to look at entile CO2. And we also look at their breathing pattern. We look at their entitle, and we look at their RISB. And we put that all together and say, well, they're probably not ready to move on to the next spot yet. And it's amazing, because after a while, then that RISB comes down, or that entitle comes down, and we move them to the next spot. But we don't have any objective criteria. We just say, okay, well, let's try 10 hours a day. And then we extubate them, and then three days later, they're intubated. So I think we need to start thinking about how we're going to do it. The third, the, the other way we've been using, and we've actually done this on our unit a couple of times, is, it, and this is of a paper, um, an International Heart Journal, and I'm sorry I couldn't, they, for some odd reason it was protected. I've never seen a PDF protected on a journal. Um, so I couldn't show you the diagrams, the, the, the curves. But entile carbon dioxide concentration can estimate the appropriate timing of weaning off from extracorporeal uh, membrane oxygenation for refractory circulatory failure. So what they did was they take the, take the flows down by 40%. If you all understand VACMO, you just take the flows down. If, you, if your heart works, it should pick up the work, and you should be getting rid of gas, right? So what they did was they turn it down by 40% and they just watch the entire CO2. That's all they watch. Well, actually, they watched a lot of things. I'm sorry. And they found that the entire CO2 had always changed steeply like a flexation point. All of a sudden, the entire CO2 just goes, shoop, goes back up. And they found that in all the cases where they, all the weaning cases, but not in the non-weaning cases, that was a good symbol of the patient being able to come off ECMO. So ETCO2 can be useful continuous parameter for predicting the adequate timing of weaning off ECMO for circulatory, fa circulatory failure at the bedside. And we've actually done a few patients like this. I haven't quite convinced my surgeons that it works, but it, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. It, it actually makes sense. Because all of a sudden now you, you're increasing flow to the lungs again. And if the cart's working well, it'll continue to make, you know, generate the flow and be able to expire the untitled CO2. Simple as that. So I want to do a quick couple of questions. How's this vent set? What's wrong with this ventilator? Anybody want to try these? What's wrong? Too, much, too little tidal volume, right? It's not high, right? It's not up to the, this is 40. The line up at the top is 40. It's too high and it's too slow, right? You're, you're hyperventilating the patient. Too much tidal volume, and it's probably a little too slow. Um, what is this? Anybody know what's going on there? Anybody want to guess? Come on, you got to get started looking at these. Somebody look. Mike, you want to try? It's on the plateau? Get a Anybody want to try this? Uh-oh, I've been talking to the wind. All right, well, if you're guessing, it's a leak, All right? Simple as that, you got a leak in the system. If you see the plateau go down and then go back up, there's gotta be a leak somewhere in the system. Remember, I said it should be a steady slope going up, okay? So when they're breathing out, something's leaking out somewhere. It's not catching it. What about this? Yeah. 
Jeez. Yeah, I go back and start over. Well, you th yeah, your heart's dying. <laughs> but more commonly, it's probably an esophageal intubation. Remember I said the end tidal CO2 slowly drifts down over time? I think that's what this is supposed to be, yeah. But yeah, it could be a dying heart, too, very much so. But usually the curve doesn't look like that, by the way. Remember, you have to your rapid rise, and then you have your alpha, and then you have your, your plateau. What about this guy? Look at the baseline. Not, well, it could be because you have a bad expiratory valve, right? Because you're not getting all your entire CO2. So normally, though, in our unit, this is almost always related to water in the line. So you just ask the respiratory therapist to come recalibrate your CO2. I, I've rarely seen this on a bit. I just I don't think I've ever seen a bad expiratory valve nowadays. Um, I guess it happens. <clears throat> but nine chances out of ten, this is when you got to go past and get your respiratory therapist and say re recalibrate because a lot of times too the the whole thing moves up. So you have end titles of 45, 50, and you'll think, oh my God, what's going on? But then you look at the baseline and you say, oh, that's the problem. Go calibrate it again. It'll come right back down. How about this little guy? What's going on? Look at the slope. Look at the phase three. It was nice and, this is a little bit exaggerated, by the way, nice, normal, and all of a sudden, well, they're having trouble. <laughs> Trying to get air out, right? So there's some kind of obstruction to expiration, asthma, COPD, bronchospasm, somebody kinks something, who knows? But when you see that change and you see that slope, you know they're having a hard time getting air out. Maybe your ventilator settings, too. And you can go back and look at your waveforms. I mean, nothing's in isolation, right? This is critical care. Nothing's ever in isolation. What about this? Somebody said this one earlier. He's just trying to take a breath in between his breaths, right? It's just an inspiring toward an expiration. That's a good one to go back and look at your ventilator. And you can do this. Literally, you guys, it's so easy. You just walk past, you look up, and there it is. You walk into the room and say, what's going on? And you look at the ventilator and the patient's struggling or something, something's going on. Somebody's doing something. It's so easy. It's, it's easier than looking at an EKG in my mind. You just get used to looking at it. And again, this is kind of the same thing. It's just worsening asthma. That slowly the slopes are going away. Um, oh, anybody know what this is? So this is just a bad seal. <laughs> it's, just, it's leaking air, right? Remember I said, the phase, the zero phase should come straight down. Come, this, this back part here should come, I don't know if it still works, but the, the, the inspiratory phase should come straight down. So there's some leak. The, it's not, the, the air is not going in. And then um, these are just some funny ones, rebreathing CO2. See the, the curve, the way it, it indents. Um, and then the station with single lung. I can't quite explain that one. I have to think about that one a little bit more. And again, this faulty inspiratory valve, both of those. Well, that's all. It's a short class today. Um, use them, please. Um, and start talking to respiratory therapists. If you really want to, I think dead space is just really important to look at. Um, please take a look at it. Try to start thinking about it. Do the poor man's dead space if you don't want to do the volumetric way. Just take the PaCO2 from the entire CO2 and see if it's varying, especially if something's going on with the patient. I think the real use of this, though, is just walking by the patient, looking at it, and it doesn't look right. It isn't right. Something's wrong with your ventilator. Something's wrong with your patient. Something's wrong with your cardiac output. Something's wrong. Use it. 
and you'll learn a lot. And remember, when you have a code, please hook up the untitled CO2. That's it. Done. Good night. Um, you showed the. Um, you showed that that work. You showed that um, Bohr dead space equation yeah. a minus e. So can you measure the mixed expired CO two? Yes. The new the new machines measure. The new the new draggers will actually measure the amount of entitled CO two coming out. The actual volume. Is that what so you're that saying? A minus e. The ventilator will measure e. So that's a cheap that's a cheap way. The end, the e is the entitled. So that's just what the end title is, not the volume. You're not measuring volume, you're just measuring the number. It's a cheap man's way to do it. But you can actually can do the volume. You can actually look at the total volume and figure out the dead space from the total volume if you know the PaCO2. And the ventilator calculates it for you, which is kind of nice. You know, whether it's completely accurate, the new, the new um, uh, infrared uh, mass, uh, mass spec, the new infrared readers on the ventilators are supposed to be very, very good. You know, and you should really do single breaths. That's what Rob does a lot. He'll come in and do a couple single breaths and really look at it closely. I mean, he, but I'm, you, so you can use it as a guide to go in the room and do it right. Um, but yeah, if you ever keep everything equal, you can really, I think you can learn a lot, especially in my world with cardiac, you know, you can see when things are not quite right. And we've been, it's been really valuable in VA ECMO for weaning. It's just really easy. Okie doke. Good luck. See ya.